my wife played the song list this morning, uh, on Saturday morning, yesterday morning, as things were unfolding. My sister-in-law, who is, she's in ICU in Syracuse, and she's um, non-responsive at this point. They don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't look really good. It doesn't look good at all, actually, but God's in control of all those things. And the songs that she had picked in early in the week, as Jay had said, she was wrestling with a lot of these things that was unfolding throughout the week. And isn't it, <laughs> it's uncanny that it's about God's goodness and his faithfulness in the midst of things there. And as I was listening to those songs, I looked ahead and I said, it doesn't really mean a whole lot to say, to talk about God's goodness and his faithfulness when everything is going really, really good. But when you're facing something tough, that you have no control over, to be able to say it then, well, there's power in that. And I want to tell you this morning that God is good and God is faithful. And why can I say that? Over 30 years ago, I was in the hospital, facing hospital. I'd had chronic ulcerative colitis for, over, for around 10 years. And it got to a spot where it was time to have radical surgery for that. At the time, it was a big deal, a total colectomy and other procedures. And I can remember having prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and had many people pray for me for healing, and it didn't happen. In the Sunday, the last Sunday in church before I was prepped to go out to start the consultation process, I went forward for prayer. And I couldn't pray anymore. I was done. Not that I'd give it up on God, but I didn't know what to say. I'd already asked for everything I ever knew. Two men from the church came up that morning, one on each side of me, and they prayed. They prayed and put it in God's hands. It was where it needed to be. And it was in that moment, you can, I could almost feel like my arms, like the story of Aaron Hur, where my arms were being lifted up, where I couldn't pray and carry the burden any longer on my own. And two brothers from the Lord came and did that. God is good and He's faithful. And he never gives us more than we can handle. I know that sounds like a trite statement, but I'm telling you it's true. It's true. And I want to tell you this too, that the reason I can say God's good and he's faithful is I laid in the hospital and I'd had this surgery. I think I was out of, out of the surgery, but still in recovery. And I was by myself in the hospital that day. Mom and dad had gone back to the hotel room. My brother had gone. I was by myself. And uh, in in a lot of ways, wondering what was going to happen and, and, and not knowing fully. I knew the surgery was successful, but you're still wrestling with a ton of things and being by myself. And I'm laying in my hospital room in Cleveland, Ohio, just around Christmas time, streaming a few days away from Christmas. And Christmas carolers came down the hall and stopped outside my door. And we're singing. And instantaneously, the presence of the Lord flooded my room. And I was so thankful, so thankful that I was assuming it was probably a church group that was just doing that, knowing there were people in the research hospital that were people from out of town without family, and they walked down the hall. And something as simple as that God used to encourage me and to uplift me. And I want to tell you, we need to remember that every Sunday now that we have our service, it's online. My sister-in-law, Teresa, has been struggling with her health for a long time. She hasn't been able to go to church for a long time. But you know what? She tunes into our service every single week. 
And I can't tell you the number of times she's mentioned to me, thankful for the sermon, but I want to tell the worship team, week after week after week, she has commented on how much the music has ministered to her in her isolation and encouraged her and challenged her. And I want you to join with me in prayer right now. Because God's able, in this moment, to visit her and just bring encouragement. Let's pray. God, I, you, you've already have done that numerous times for many of us in so many ways, Lord, when we're on our own and it doesn't feel like there's anybody else around that you can visit us. And I pray that you visit my sister-in-law, visit Teresa this morning. Regardless of what her state is, Lord, I pray that she would sense your comfort and your peace, your approval, and your strength. I do ask that you would touch her body and bring healing, Lord, but I leave that in your hands to do what you believe is best. But Lord, regardless of what happens there, I pray that she would, I know she's not alone, she's with you, that you're there, and I pray that you would touch her. I pray that you'd be with her family today, her husband, her kids, her parents, my wife, her brother. I pray, Lord, that our prayers this morning as we lift them up would be lifting their arms and their hands and bringing them into your presence where they can receive your comfort and your strength and your peace in a tough time. Lord, I thank you that you're faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but it's important I do this. Two weeks ago, we've done this whole thing, Mother's Day, and then we did a little bit of parenting, and then we had Kids' Day last week and Father's Day today and all about this family stuff. If you are with us this morning and you have children at home that are under the age of 18 and were not here last week, could you please just raise your hand? Please don't be shy. Get your hands up in the air. Jeff, could you take them? We have a tool here. Um, it's, get your hand up there so Jeff can see you again. He's got something for you. You're going to want this. It's important. Um, two weeks ago, I shared a message on the challenge that God gave in Scripture as far as parents to talk about God's truth when you stand up, when you sit down, when you're on the way, when you're traveling, when you're doing different things. And these, we actually went and found some conversation cards for people. you got one more in the back yet, Jeff, too. The, the king's there, so... Can I get another one? Jeff's doing his thing there. I just can see that. He probably can't see all that. So, um, and so, parents, we wanted to put that in your hand. It's a great opportunity for you to be able to talk to your kids. Um, you'll have to choose it. If you have little ones, there may be questions. That, there are questions that would fit for even little people, but there's also ones all the way up through your teenagers and even in your adult children or whatever. But we want to put that in your hands because we believe that's a good thing for you to do. And I said so, like some of the stuff would have a, it might ask a question and it might have a scripture, but a lot of them don't have a scripture. And if you ever get into a spot as a parent and you're having that discussion and you guys as a family are trying to figure out what does God have to actually say about this and you can't find that, text me, call me, whatever. I'll help you find some scriptures to go along with that. But it's important that you have those conversations with your children regularly. Um, and if you weren't here two weeks ago, I would encourage you to go back into our, our social media on our website, find that message to parents. And uh, on Kids Day, there was a message for the kids, there was some stuff for parents in that too, and listen to that, and that will go along with what you just received there. So, so today, I'm going to share a message that's primarily, but not alone, but primarily for the dads in the room, um, but it's also for men in general, and actually there's a lot in there for anybody that wants to listen in. So don't 
tune this out because you're not a dad this morning. You can see I got my little badge on that the kids' Sunday school class gave me, and I proudly wear that this morning as a dad, and, and uh, it's a blessing to be able to have little people that come up to me and say, here, here, Pastor Kyle, will you please wear it? I said, absolutely, I'll wear it this morning. Um, we're going to take a look. Um, actually, uh, the, the, the message here on both fronts is for those that are following God and are disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, if you've never come to Christ and given him control of your life and come for forgiveness, you need to do that. Because what I say this morning has, is really directed to people that have already done that, but that doesn't leave you out because there's a lot of things that you need to be about if you haven't, and you've got to start that journey by coming to Christ and giving him control of your heart. Um, we're going to take a look in a few minutes here about, uh, take a look at a guy by the name of Gideon, and we're going to actually look at and get some insights about what God has called us to be as fathers and men, as people of God, and how you go about that, okay? But I want to give you some background first. I need to give you a background um, into uh, Gideon's life, a little bit of what he stepped into. So um, first off, Gideon was an Israelite. He was a Jew, and he was raised that way. And, and actually what had happened is God had actually, if you go back in biblical history, you may know the story, you may not, but if you were to read through your Bible, you'd see the story about how God's people, the Israelites, were, ended up in Egypt and were in slavery and being mistreated and misused. And God actually miraculously and powerfully and supernaturally brings deliverance to them and brings them out of Egypt, freeing them from slavery. And as they come out, he, he takes them to a place that the Bible calls the promised land. It's in present-day Israel, which was the land that he promised to give them. So he removes them from slavery. He, he pl- takes them on a journey and puts them in the promised land, which the Bible says is, is a land flowing with milk and honey, and they had everything that they needed. But as he was doing that, he, he gave them very explicit warnings and instructions as they were entering the promised land. He, he commanded them they were not to intermingle and intermix with the people in that land. They weren't to intermarry with them. They weren't to worship the gods of that land. They weren't to join the people of that land in military operations. It can sound very exclusionary and not inclusive using our current language, but that's what God told them. And there's a reason for that, because God knew that if his people connected themselves too closely with the people of that land, that they would be led astray to follow after false gods, that they would stray in their relationship and their worship of God and get themselves into trouble. But you know what happened? Even though he gave explicit warnings, blessings will come if you follow me, curses will come if you, if you do these things I'm telling you not to do. And guess what they did? The people that disobeyed God. They did just the opposite of what God instructed them to do. They... Uh, um, they intermarried. They married the people of the land. They intermingled. They joined in all kinds of things with the people of the land. And it caused them, exactly what God said, it caused them to stray in their relationship with God and actually get to the spot where they actually were worshiping the false gods of the land of the place that they went into and worshiping idols and all that stuff there, which was strictly forbidden. It couldn't be any clearer. If you read your Bible, sometimes you're dumbfounded. How could they do that when they had that direct of a an explanation of not to do it. And then the result of their disobedience. The result of their disobedience. Okay, take a look at this. <clears throat> In his anger, 
against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them would happen. The people were in great distress. Yeah, God was angry with his people. He had explicitly told them not to do a certain thing, and they did just the opposite of what he said, and his anger rose against his own people. It got to the spot where it sounds crazy because if you read in the Old Testament all the way through this, this journey that they have through to the promised land and even times afterwards you can see God miraculously in a mighty and a supernatural way delivering his people from their enemies. They don't even lift a finger to fight a lot of battles. And now it says that he actually allowed their enemies and used their enemies to inflict pain and difficulty and tough times and loss on his own people. The Bible tells us here that they were unable to defeat their enemies because God had removed His protection, His supernatural. That's pretty serious stuff, especially if you read the Bible and know that so many times He had come to their rescue. Now all of a sudden, it's almost the opposite where that protection is removed and they're being punished. And actually it goes on and says that God says, now I will not remove those people from you. I will leave them there and they will become a test for you. Will you follow me or will you follow them? And those people remained a test and actually became a snare for them for a long time. But I want to focus on this last thing. It says, the people were in great distress. They were oppressed, distressed, and in trouble. What does that mean? They were being subjected to harsh treatment at the hands of their enemies. We don't, in the United States... None of us, none of us know what that means to be subjected to harsh treatment because of a national enemy. We don't know. We only see that through the eyes of other places because it hasn't happened here in our lifetime. They were subjected to this harsh treatment. They were burdened with thoughts and feelings that weighed heavily on their mind and spirit. Things were bad enough at the hands of their enemies that it it constantly weighed on them and and dragged them down. It was a heavy burden to carry. They were suffering from sorrow and pain. They were impoverished. They were in trouble. They found themselves with all kinds of problems and difficulties. And now the worst part about it, all of this was because of their own bad choices. It's interesting, I hadn't talked to Jay at all about the message this morning, and he was talking about sometimes we get ourselves into tough times because of things that we've done. It's not even this neutral thing that we're being attacked by the enemy because we did something good. Sometimes it's because I did something really stupid and disobeyed God, and now I'm in trouble, and those things happen. But the interesting, the same thing he said there, there's good news in that. They were, they were actually in this spot, this tough spot, because they had disobeyed God, what he had said. They had not done what they were told to do. But look at this, next thing. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Do you realize that God loved those people enough that even though they heard with their ears and understood exactly what he was warning them not to do, and then they went out and did that very thing, and he brought his wrath upon them, but he didn't leave them in that spot. He loved them enough to deliver them. 
even though they were blatantly disobedient. Let's talk for a second about this Raiders. No, it's not the football team from Las Vegas. Okay? It's, it's, they, these Raiders were plunderers. They were people who, who came into the country, foreign people who came into the country and robbed God's people of the goods and the valuables by force. They came in because they were stronger than them and took whatever they wanted. They stole their crops when they were harvested. They took their valuables. They took whatever was worthwhile. And they were also, this, they, they, were, they were plunders and spoilers. And what does that mean? Not only did they just take stuff, but they also worked very hard to destroy and diminish anything of value in the land. They brought, they brought devastation upon the croplands and things like that. And they, 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 they ruined the value of anything that God's people had. But the interesting thing is, God didn't leave them there with those raiders. The Bible tells us that God saved his people. Saved them. What does that mean? He came and rescued them. He delivered them. He helped them in their distress, and he gave them victory. It's interesting, this word, if you were to look it up in the Hebrew and do the study through which I had this week, that the, the, the Hebrew word here that has said God saved them, he came and saved them, it initially in the Hebrew language represented exactly what it was in that time, which a, a physical deliverance from enemies and catastrophes, which we see in the story. He comes in in their situation, and he comes in and he delivers them and rescues them from this physical, the stuff that's going on at the hands of their enemies. But later, over time in the Old Testament, before Jesus comes, this slowly changes to a theological meaning, of, and it has a, has a spiritual meaning, and it's later used in Isaiah and other things as a hint at an everlasting spiritual salvation which the Messiah Jesus would bring. So it starts out in its use as just talking about a physical deliverance from physical enemies, and by the time you get into the prophets a little later, hundreds of years later, you find out that now it's starting to, to allude to a spiritual salvation and a spiritual rescue that the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, came and brought. And it's interesting that God said he was going to save, but he used judges to deliver them at this time. Israel didn't have kings at that time. God was their king. Okay? Now these judges, was that the guy in the black robe that sits there with his gavel and says, order in the court? Not at all. Got to get that picture out of your mind. That's not what it was. A better word here was, they were leaders. God raised up leaders to bring deliverance. They were used of God specifically in these situations. In the book of Judges, where this story comes from, there's a whole long list of judges, leaders that were raised at different times. It's a very sad Sad book. Because God miraculously comes and does great things through the leader, and then it says, after that generation that saw that pass, they went back to serving other gods again. And it's a constant cycle of stories. But God keeps sending, keeps sending leaders to deliver. And they, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were delivering their people from the oppression of these nations. And in those situations, it's important you catch this too, these leaders at the time, because there wasn't a kingship, there wasn't a formal government, they're quickly removed from having Moses, who, let, who God used to lead them, and then pass the torch to Joshua, and the judges comes the generation after Joshua dies. Because it says that after Joshua died, those that, were, that remembered him served God until they were gone, and it says the next generation knew not the things of the Lord and rebelled. It only took... It, it, <laughs> 
It wasn't even a jet. It was, it was like as soon as those that had walked with Joshua were all gone, the people just went wild and crazy and did whatever they wanted to do. And these people, when they were raised up by God leaders, they, the, Bible, the, 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 the language says that they ruled, they governed as supreme magistrates. In other words, they very rapidly were raised to the spot of being the ultimate control in the land and leading. And they were in charge. And they maintained, as in their time, their, during their lifetime, they maintained law and order and the proper worship of God during the period with which they were called. Sad story is, after God would miraculously do this and show miracles to them and bring them back to Him, as soon as the generation that walked under that leader passed away, the next generation went back and did whatever they wanted to do and went right back into the same stuff again. So what does all this have to do with fathers? Well, it has a lot more than you think it does. I want to tell you this morning, loud and clear, there are raiders. There are raiders in your life and in my life. Talking to dads very specifically this morning, but the rest of you listen in, but dads specifically because of the day that we're on. There are raiders in your life that are attacking you, that are attacking your wife, that are attacking your family, and are attacking those that are around you. Those leader, those, those raiders are creating, and again, remember this now, as I develop this thought a little bit more, the idea of raiders in your life, it's important that you recognize that you and I are not being attacked, although the attack may come through a person or a group of people. It's not the people that are our enemy. The Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And what often happens is those principalities and powers, the enemy and his forces, actually will use people to accomplish their ends. And it's interesting, these raiders, these things that come at our families and us and the people around us, they create great distress in our own lives as guys and in the lives of our families. That distress, that, that oppression, um, devaluing, all kinds of things. I want you to think of all the troubling things in our world today, guys. Moral decay. Sexual confusion on all fronts. Disobedience. Blatant disobedience and rejection of God's truth in a nation that calls itself a Christian nation. In a nation that many people came here in the beginning because they were able to experience religious freedom and set up a community that was based on biblical truth. And now we have outright blatant disobedience and rejection, whole scale of God's truth. Limits, drastic limits put on how much you can use God's truth in the public arena. My father grew up in a classroom, which would have been the, the equivalent of public school at the time because it was a little one-room schoolhouse, but it was put together by the community where they learned things like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and heard biblical stories in the classroom to provide good moral teaching on top of their academics. And here we are two generations later, two and a half generations later, and that is not allowed. It is not allowed. Limits, like I said, put on God's truth in the public arena. Temptations from media and culture that inundates us everywhere we go because of the way our technology is. Tons of temptation. 
an overwhelming focus on material possessions at all costs in this country. You say, it's not that bad. Oh, boy. (laughs) Even in my generation, it's amazing how much that changed. We have lifted up in this country the the, the, the possessions and and our prosperity is what we deserve. We all deserve this. Why do we deserve it? Why do I get to live the life I get to live while there's people on the other side of the world that are starving? I just was fortunate to be born where I'm... Well, maybe it is fortunate. Maybe it's not fortunate sometimes. I don't know. I'm just saying that there. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to quote a couple of several election cycles ago. It was the first time I'd ever heard this. But if you watch it now, it's common in politics today. There was a time in a presidential debate where one of the candidates was talking about one thing and the other one on the stage took a look at the person and said, it's the economy, dummy. It's the economy that's really important. In other words, it's our money, our back pocket that's really important. And if, you, if, you have, if you're old enough to know there was, has been a huge transition, that's one of the big things you hear about today. There's a big uproar right now. What's going to happen with our economy? Inflation and gas prices, and all that stuff there, and oh my gosh, what are we going to do? There's so much that you and I face that's in direct contradiction to God's ways. So much so that we don't even recognize it a lot of times anymore. There's so much culturally, and in the press, and in the media, and anywhere you go, and in regular conversations over the, the, water, the water cooler at work, and wherever we are, casual conversations, and going out to dinner and things, there is so much that we're, we're encountering that's in direct contradiction to God's ways. And you and I are pushed, as followers of Christ, to go along with the crowd in that. We are pushed to join in, and if we refuse to do so, we're marginalized, increasingly so. And I want to tell you this, and this is, this is really good stuff. Much of this stuff that I'm saying is just like the Israelites. It's been a result of our own bad choices. You see, yep, I know our country's made bad choices. No, I'm talking about the church right now. Our own bad choices because we, as church people, as people who call ourselves Christ, have allowed ourselves to go along and to not make waves and finding ourselves compromising and taking on the world's values. We too easily forsake God's ways. We too easily chase after the things of the world. And as we do chase after the words of Savaron Kaj, we justify it. We find ways to say that it's okay. In so many ways, as followers of Christ... We have failed to make God and His ways the most important thing in our lives. Because you know what a true follower and a true disciple of Jesus Christ is? It's somebody who God's truth and God's ways and His teachings are the most important thing in life. It's even more important than our family. Because you dads, you cannot be a good dad and a good leader in your home if the gospel truth of Jesus Christ and God's word and God's truth is not the most important thing in your life. It's God's truth is the thing that we're supposed to order and base our life on, that all of our decisions 
everything that we encounter in life is evaluated, is judged, and brought to consideration about what we're supposed to do. Not by your portfolio, not by your money, not by whatever the world calls success, none of that stuff in the world's wisdom. It's what does God say we're supposed to be about and everything that I do and everything that I say and all the things that I base my life on are evaluated by that criterion. And I want to tell you that all of this stuff is weighing our families down with thoughts that are burdensome. There are times, I'm sure, as parents right now that you don't even want your kids to listen to the news because you're afraid it's going to... It's so negative. Negativity. And we want to shield our kids and our families and our wives and, and people important to us from the negativity. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's rampant in our culture right now and these things are actually, just like the children of Israel, it's burdening, it's weighing us down with stress and, and all those things there. Anxiety is probably as high as it's ever been and increasing. Some of that is pandemic-related, but it hasn't gotten any better since the pandemic is moving on. It's actually getting worse. We have, even as followers of Christ, we endure sorrow and pain and difficulty and the anxiety just like the rest of the world does, but the question is, what are we doing about it? I want to tell you that Jesus Christ himself warned us of days like this. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But he says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you see what he says here? Jesus was speaking when he talks about the thief right here. He's not talking about the people that are disobedient. He's talking about the power that's behind that, which is the enemy, the devil. And he's saying here that the devil comes with a goal. And his goal, ready, is to destroy you and your family, to kill you and your family if he could, to cause distress and anxiety in your family. And here, catch this one now. And this is probably the most important. To steal the peace and joy that is available through life with Jesus Christ. He will go to whatever lengths he can, guys, to get at your family and rob them of the peace and the joy and the strength that comes from following Christ. It's not enough just to get the world in an uproar, but he's coming at you and your family because you want to follow Christ. And that's my prayer that you do. He's coming at that because he wants to remove any power, any strength, any ability you have in your family to have peace and joy and then to affect others. He wants to utterly destroy, to ravage, to demolish, and obliterate your life, your kid's life, and everybody's life around you. And it's interesting that God does not allow that to happen. God gets blamed for a lot of stuff. There would be people this morning saying, how can you worship that God who you pray about and you prayed for your sister-in-law's healing and it hasn't happened? A loving God would never let that happen. I'm just telling you right now, we live in a fallen world. And there's an enemy that's behind that stuff. And if the enemy actually had his way, we would have no idea how bad it really would be. But there are limits to which God places how far things can go. And he's offering peace and joy and strength and deliverance in the midst of it. Jesus gave us this warning. He also said this, <clears throat> I have told you these things, these warnings, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, 
you will have trouble. Isn't it interesting? In me, Jesus says, you'll have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus warns us, just like the God warned his people back then, to give us hope. And the interesting thing is, God doesn't, isn't, Jesus, when he spoke and when God speaks, doesn't do these things to make us afraid. He tries to get our attention, but he does these things so that we will recognize that he has a solution to that which is troubling us. And his solution is to do what? Exactly what this says. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus said the solution is that in the midst of the difficulties that you're going to have, my plan for you is that I will bring abundant life in the midst of the messed up world. You, if you're a follower of Christ and are really going all the way with him so that his truth and his, 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 his principles and the things he's command are the most important thing that you will follow at all costs, even if it alienates you, that thing will make you an oasis in the middle of a drastically harsh environment, spiritually speaking. Because you will have abundant life that bubbles out of you and flows to anyone that will avail themselves of that. But it, it's not just an automatic because you pray to prayer sometime. It's because you have dedicated your life to walk with God in His ways. Jesus tells us that take heart because I have overcome the world. And when He's saying the world there... I have overcome the power that's behind the world system, that's behind all these things there. He has overcome the enemy, and he offers deliverance to anyone with a condition. It's available to anyone, but it requires that we give our life away to become his follower. We give up our freedoms to become his slave. We give up our own well-being to become his servant because there's no better master than Jesus Christ. And he has our best in mind. And he offers deliverance for anyone that will give it all up to follow him. Still not sure, are you, where this fits for fathers. Here's where you come in. As I was prepping for this last week, as soon as the service was over, and I was driving home in my car not knowing where to go for Father's Day, the Lord just plunked this little whisper inside of me, says, go to Gideon, get your lessons from Gideon. And so the rest here now, that's all background to get us to the spot here, but here's the things that I believe the Lord was, wants to tell you guys as fathers this morning. First off, God has called you, Dad, and men to be a judge, to be a leader. Primarily, to be a leader for your wife and your children. But also to those around you, beyond your wife and your children, who are devastated and being devastated because they're distant from God and being ravished by the enemy. Not to look at them as the enemy, but to look at them as people who are like a sheep without a shepherd that are getting ravished and beaten up. And God is calling you to be a leader People all around us, sometimes even our wife and children, are being ravished and anxiety-ridden, all these things, and they don't even know it. Because the reason they don't even know what's happening around sometimes is because the culture embraces 
all the things that are distancing us from God. The culture is so much in a rapid decline and running in one way that they're glorifying all the very things that are causing them to go in rapid decline and calling that good and that right. God has called you to deliver and to rescue people from oppression. And I'm not talking, although there's some real things in our cultural issues, we have racial oppression, we have wage oppression, we have sexual oppression, we have all these things there. But we need to take a step back away from that for a second and look at spiritual oppression. Not saying those things aren't important, but I'm telling you the real hope, what God is really calling you as men to do, is to rescue people from oppression in all forms and the destruction and ruin that follows people who don't follow God's ways. We will never fix things in this country if we only try to remove the situations that we're facing as a culture. It has to go all the way to the bottom of the line. Is the only hope for people to be really released from oppression and distress and anxiety is that they would humbly repent and follow God's ways and recognize the importance of following His truth. And God has called you primarily, dads, to start with this. You need to make God the most important thing in your life, bar none. That means His ways, His truth, His teaching, His instruction become the rock-solid bedrock of your life. That you make a decision, you can say, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. And that's not a prideful, cocky statement. That's a, I'm digging my heels in. Boom. Just like that. And saying, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. You say, well, what if my, my wife and my kids don't come along in that? As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. And that's not male chauvinism. That's simply saying, you can do whatever you want, but this guy is not going to buckle. I am going to obey God. I'm going to make choices that are reliant upon what God says I'm supposed to do, not what the world says. And I want to tell you in the midst of this, being called to be a leader, called to be a judge, you're in good company. You're in good company. Do you realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, was a judge? In the same way that God raised up judges in the Old Testament, He raised up the ultimate judge in Jesus Christ. To do what? To be a deliverer. To be a rescuer. To be a leader. Get this one now. If you go back into Judges, God says, Raiders came and ravished the land, but God raised up judges to save his people. That word save. Listen to this. That's Old Testament Hebrew. New Testament is written in Greek. But if you were to go to Matthew, one of the first things it says, Matthew is the, it's the first gospel, when it says, and you, even when, when I, think, I think it was when Gabriel's talking to Mary, she's pregnant. Or no, not, maybe before she's pregnant. Maybe it's when she's going to have a child. You're going to have a child, and you need to call him what? Jesus Guess what Jesus means? Guess what Jesus means? Jesus comes from that Hebrew word that's used in Judges that says God raised up a judge 
to do what? To save his people. The word Jesus uses the root of the word that means save. So really, guys, what God is calling you to do is to join with Jesus as a dad and as a man to rescue and save. To partake and help in the ministry that Jesus was called to accomplish. Jesus was called to what? To deliver, to rescue, and to save people from their sins, but to rescue them out of all the other results of sin. And as a man, as a, as especially as a father, you are called to join with Jesus in that ministry in his absence physically from the earth. He's still here in spirit, in power, in glory, by the person of the Holy Spirit. But he's not physically present. He will be someday again. But in his absence, God has called you as a dad to walk in that ministry that Jesus walks in of saving and rescuing and delivering, starting with your wife and your children and emanating into the other people in your sphere of influence. You and I are called to be His hands and His feet in rescuing the world and our sin. And it always was supposed to start and always is supposed to start with your wife and children. We think sometimes we can let that go and do the things that are visible out in the world or in the church or in the community. No, 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 no. I forgot to say at the beginning, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are always called. Jesus, when he called his disciples, where did he tell them to go to first? To Jerusalem, to all of Judea, and then to the other, other ends of the world. He's always said, you need to begin to learn to do these things right in your own backyard. Don't think that you're going to head off somewhere around the world and make a huge difference if you've never applied any of this stuff in your own family. I really believe that powerful spiritual leadership in the world, you can always trace authentic, not what the world will look at and not what looks good on the outside, but stuff that actually makes a difference comes from people who have applied it in their own private personal life first and then do it with the people close to them, and then God just continues to expand that territory because it's something that when you scratch the surface, you find out there's consistency at all levels. All of this might sound like a lot. It can sound like it's way too much to expect of somebody. You can find yourself saying, how in the world will I ever know how to do this? This rescuing and with the things that are going on, the how? Where do you even start? And will it really make that much of a difference? We always say this too. And you know, I'm saying these things because these are things that go through my mind that have caused me at times to back off. Somebody else is better qualified. Somebody's got more training, more experience. Then we can tell. I, I, I think, you know, there's so many things that God calls us to do. I think this is just one I'm going to pass on. I'll, I'll do other things. Those kinds of questions are normal, but they should never, ever, guys, keep us from embracing and seeking to fulfill the call to lead, to rescue, protect, and deliver, starting with our families, and then as far as God will take us beyond our families. You and I will stand before God himself someday, and we will answer 
to that call. You can't, (laughs) you had a kid, you guaranteed yourself that that's what the call is. You can't, you can choose whether or not you're going to embrace that call, but you can't get rid of the call because it happened when you had a child. It happened when you entered into relationship with your wife. And you say, well, I never, I never married her. Well, that's... If you're reading your Bible, yeah, you did. Maybe you didn't say I do, but you did. And so guys, I'm telling you, that call is there, and you will answer to God someday with what you did with that call. And that's serious business, and you can't get away from it. And it can seem like it's harsh and it's not fair. It is fair. It is the right thing. It's God's plan. And, and if you listen more, you're going to find some encouraging things here going forward. So I want to tell you that you can't walk away from that. You can, but you're going to answer to God sometime that you walked away from that. We all talk about wanting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to tell you the best thing that you can do to say, well, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant is to embrace the call to lead, to rescue, to deliver, and to protect your wife and your children, the things that are going on in the world today, by basing your life on Jesus Christ and his ways. Now, what time is it? Oh, I'm sorry. It's 11.53, but we've got a little bit more we've got to cover. We haven't even gotten into the encouraging stuff yet. Okay? Got the heavy stuff. I got a book here. It's called Hurlbut's Story of the Bible. It's really old. It goes back into the 1930s. Great resource. It takes the whole Bible, lumps it down into about 120 readable stories in today's language. Well, with today's language in the 30s. It's been abridged several times. There's copies still available. You can still get it. Um, and instead of reading to you out of the Scripture this morning, you say, well, how, how dare you, Pastor? You should be reading out of the Scripture. Well, you're going to find out that if you test this, you go find your Bible in Judges chapter, I think it's 4 or 3, and read the story of Gideon after I read it out of here, and you'll find out that, and you just get a copy of this and read the foreword. You want to read it to your kids. It's really good stuff. This is called Gideon and His Brave 300. Again, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord in worshiping Baal, and the Lord left them again to suffer for their sins. This time it was the Midianites living near the desert on the east of Israel. Let's stop for a second. Guys, if you can get off your macho-ness for a minute with me. I used to sit on my grandfather's lap, and I used to ask him to read. He'd, he'd say in the evenings sometimes when I would go stay over the night with him, get the book out, and he says, what story do you want to hear tonight? And I would either choose this one, or I would choose Samson, or all my hero David and Goliath, all my heroes of the Bible, these great adventure stories. So guys, I'm going to ask you to do something maybe you haven't done in 30 or 40 or 50 years, which is go back to when you were a kid, and how much you love to hear stories told to you and read to you, because all kids do. And you let yourself get enthralled by this story, because it's got action, and it's got good stuff in it, and it's got good heroes in it. So here we go again. Ready? This time it was the Midianites living near the desert on the east of Israel who came against the tribes in the middle of the country. The two tribes that suffered the hardest fate were, were Ephraim and the Manassites on the west of the Jordan. For seven years, the Midianites swept over their land every year, just at the time of harvest, and carried away all the crops of grain until the Israelites had no food for themselves and none for their sheep and cattle. The Midianites brought also their own flocks and camels without number, which ate all the grass of the field. 
These Midianites were the wild Arabs living on the border of the desert. And from their land they made sudden and swift attacks upon the people of Israel. The people of Israel were driven away from their villages and their farms and were compelled to hide in the caves of the mountains. And if any Israelite could raise any grain, he buried it in pits covered with earth or in empty wine presses where the Midianites couldn't find it. One day, a man named Gideon was threshing out wheat in a hidden place when suddenly he saw an angel sitting under an oak tree. The angel said to him, You're a brave man, Gideon, for the Lord is with you. Go out boldly and save your people from the power of the Midianites. Gideon answered the angel, O Lord, how can I save Israel? Mine is a poor family in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I'll be with you, and I will help you drive out the Midianites. Gideon felt that it was the Lord who was talking with him in the form of an angel. He brought an offering and laid it on a rock before the angel. Then the angel touched the offering with his staff. At once a fire leaped up and burned the offering, and then the angel vanished from his sight. Gideon was afraid when he saw this, but the Lord said to him, Peace be unto you, Gideon. Do not fear, for I am with you. On the spot where the Lord appeared to Gideon, under an oak tree near the village of Ophrah in the land of Manasseh, Gideon built an altar and called it by a name which means, The Lord is Peace. This altar was standing long afterward in that place. Then the Lord told Gideon that before setting his people free from the Midianites, he must first set them free from the service of Baal and Asherah, the two idols most worshipped among them. Near the house of Gideon's own father stood an altar to Baal in the image of Asherah. On that night, Gideon went out with ten men and threw down the image of Baal and cut in pieces the wooden image of Asherah and destroyed the altar before these idols. And in place he built an altar to the God of Israel and on it laid the broken pieces of the idols for wood and with them offered a young ox as a burnt offering. On the next morning, when the people of the village went out to worship their idols, they found them cut in pieces and the altar taken away. And in its place stood an altar of the Lord, and on it the pieces of the asher were burning as wood under a, a sacrifice to the Lord. The people looked at the broken and burning idols and they said, Who did this? Someone said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this last night. Then they came to Joash, Gideon's father, and said, We're going to kill your son because he has destroyed the image of Baal, who is our God. And Joash, Gideon's father, said, If Baal is a god, he can take care of himself, and he will punish the man who has destroyed his image. Why should you help Baal? Let Baal help himself. And when they saw that Baal could not harm the man who had broken down his altar and his image, the people turned from Baal back to, the, their, back to their own Lord God. Gideon sent men through all his own tribe of Manasseh and the other tribes in the part of the land to say, Come and help us drive out the Midianites. The men came and gathered around Gideon. Very few of them had swords and spears, for the Israelites were not a fighting people and were not trained for war. They met beside a great spring on Mount Gilboa called the Fountain of Herod. Mount Gilboa is one of the three mountains on the east of the plain of Esdraelon, on the plain of Jezreel, of which we read in the last story. On the plain stretching up the side of another of these mountains called the Hill of Morah was the camp of a vast Midianite army. For as soon as the Midianites heard that Gideon had undertaken to set his people free, they came against him with a mighty host. Just as Deborah and her little army had looked down from Mount Tabor on the great army of the Canaanites, so now on Mount Gilboa Gideon looked down on the host of the Midianites in their camp on the same plain. Gideon was a man of faith. 
He wished to be sure that God was leading him, and he prayed to God and said, O Lord, give me some sign that thou wilt save Israel through me. Here's a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If tomorrow morning the fleece is wet with dew while the grass around it is dry, then I shall know that thou art with me, and thou wilt give me victory over the Midianites. Very early the next morning, Gideon came to look at the fleece, and he found it wringing wet with dew while all around the grass was dry. But Gideon wasn't yet satisfied. He said to the Lord, O Lord, please don't be angry with me, but give me just one more sign. Tomorrow morning, let the fleece be dry and let the dew be all around it, and then I'll doubt no more. The next morning, Gideon found the grass and the bushes and the trees wet with dew while the fleece of wool was dry. And Gideon was not sure that God had called him. And I'm sorry. And Gideon was now sure that God had called him and that God would give him victory over the enemies of Israel. The Lord said to Gideon, your army's too large. If Israel should win the victory, they would say, we won it by our own might. Send home all these, those people who are afraid to fight. For many of the people were frightened as they looked on the host of their enemies. And the Lord knew that these men in the battle would only hinder the rest. So Gideon sent word through the camp. Whoever is afraid of the enemy can go home. And 22,000 people went away, leaving only 10,000 in Gideon's army. But the army was stronger, though it was smaller, for the cowards had gone and only the brave men were left. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are yet too many. You need only a few of the bravest and best men to fight in this battle. Bring the men down the mountain beside the water, and I'll show you there how to find the men whom you need. In the morning, Gideon, by God's command, called his 10,000 men out and made them march down the hill just as though they were going to attack the enemy. And they, when, when they were beside the water, he noticed how they drank and set them apart in two companies according to their way of drinking. As they came to the water, most of the men threw aside their shields and spears and knelt down and scooped up a draft of water with both hands together like a cup. These men Gideon commanded to stay in one company. There were a few men who didn't stop to take a large draft of water holding spear and shield in the right hand to be ready for the enemy if one should appear. They merely caught up a handful of water in passing and marched on, lapping up the water from one hand. God said to Gideon, Set by themselves these men who lapped each a handful of water. These are the men who I have chosen to set Israel free. Gideon counted these men and found that there were only 300 of them. While all the rest bowed down on their faces to drink, the difference between them was that these 300 were earnest men of one purpose, not turning aside from their aim even to drink as the others did. Then too, they were watchful men, always ready to meet their enemies. Suppose that the Midianites had rushed out on the army while nearly all of them were on their faces drinking, their arms thrown to one side. How helpless they would have been. But no enemy could have surprised the 300 who held their spears and shields ready even while they were taking a drink. Some have thought that this test showed also who were worshipers of idols and who worshipped God. For men fell on their faces when they prayed to the idols, but men stood up while they worshipped the Lord. Perhaps this act showed that most of the army were used to worship kneeling down before idols and that only a few used to stand up before the Lord in their worship. But of this we can't be certain. It did show that there were 300 brave, watchful men, obedient to orders and ready for the battle. Then Gideon, at God's command, sent back to the camp on Mount Gilboa all the rest of his army, nearly 10,000 men, keeping with himself only his little band of 300. But before the battle, God gave to Gideon one more sign that he might be the more encouraged. God said to Gideon, 
Go down with your servant into the camp of the Midians and hear what they say. It will cheer your heart for the fight. Then Gideon crept down the mountain with his servant and walked around the edge of the Midian camp just as though he were one of their own men. He saw two men talking and stood near to listen to them. One man said to the other, I had a strange dream last night. I dreamed that I saw a loaf of barley bread come rolling down the mountain and it struck the tent and threw it down in a heap on the ground. What do you suppose that that dream meant? That loaf of bread, said the other, means Gideon, a man of Israel, who will come down and destroy this army, for the Lord has given us into, into his hand. Gideon was glad when he heard this, for it showed that the Midianites, for all their number, were in fear of him and of his army, even more, even more than his men had feared the Midianites. He gave thanks to God and hastened back to his camp and made ready to lead his men against the Midianites. Gideon's plan did not need a large army, but it needed a few careful, bold men who should do exactly as their leader commanded them. He gave to each man a lamp, a pitcher, and a trumpet and told the men just what was to be done with them. The lamp was lighted, but was placed inside the pitcher so that it could not be seen. He divided his men into three companies and very quietly led them down the mountain in the middle of the night and arranged them all in order around the camp of the Midianites. Then at one moment, a great shout rang out in the darkness, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and after it came a crash of breaking pictures and then a flash of light in every direction. The 300 men had given the shout and broken their pictures so that on every side lights were shining. The men blew their trumpets with a mighty noise and the Midianites were roused from sleep to see enemies all around them, lights beaming and swords flashing in the darkness while everywhere the sharp sound of the trumpets was heard. They were filled with sudden terror and thought only of escape, not of fighting. But wherever they turned, their enemies seemed to be standing with swords drawn. They trampled each other to death, flying from the Israelites. Their own land was in the east across the river Jordan, and they fled in that direction down one of the valleys between the mountains. Gideon had thought that the Midianites would turn toward their own land if they should be beaten in the battle, and he had already planned to cut off their flight. The 10,000 men in the camp he had placed on the sides of the valley leading to the Jordan. There they slew very many of the Midianites, and they fled down the steep pass toward the river. And Gideon had also sent to the men of the tribe of Ephraim, who had thus far taken no part in the war, to hold the only place at the river where men could wade through the water. Those of the Midianites who escaped from Gideon's men on either side of the valley were now met by the Ephraimites at the river, and many more of them were slain. Among the slain were the two of the princes of the Midianites named Oreb and Zeb, a part of the Midianite army was able to get across the river and to continue its flight toward the desert, but Gideon and his brave 300 men followed closely after them, fought another battle with them, destroyed them utterly, and took their two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, <clears throat> whom they killed. In this great victory, after this great victory, the Israelites were freed forever from the Midianites. They never again ventured to leave their home in the desert to make war on the tribes of Israel. The tribe of Ephraim, in the middle of the land was one of the most powerful of the twelve tribes. Its leaders were quite displeased with Gideon because their part in the victory had been so small. They said to Gideon in an angry manner, Why didn't you send word to us when you were calling to men, for men to fight the Midianites? But Gideon knew how to make a kind answer. He said to them, What have I done as compared with you? Did you not kill thousands of Midianites at the crossing of the Jordan? Didn't you take their two princes, Oreb and Zeb? What could my men have done without the help of your men? By gentle words and words of praise, Gideon made the men of Ephraim friendly. And after this, as long as Gideon lived, he ruled as judge in Israel. The people wished him to make, wished him to make himself a king. 
rule over us as king, they said, and let your son be king after you and his son king after him. But Gideon said, no, you have a king already, for the Lord God is the king of Israel. No one but God shall be king over these tribes. Of all the 15 men who ruled as judges in Israel, Gideon, the fifth judge, was the greatest in courage and wisdom and faith in God. If all the people of Israel had been like him, there would have been no worship of idols and no weakness before enemies. Israel would have been strong and faithful before God. But as soon as Gideon died, and even before his death, his people began once more to turn away from the Lord and to seek the idol gods that could give them no help. I want to make a few quick comments to you about that story. Lessons of advice you can take from that. First off, guys, men, fathers, you too are a mighty warrior. Even if you don't feel like it, and even if you don't like act like it at all times, you're still a mighty warrior. When we are introduced to Gideon, what's he doing? Hiding in a wine press from his enemies, and it says, You're a mighty warrior. And we don't see any sarcasm in that, but he said, yeah, I'm a mighty warrior, look what I'm doing. But in his comments, you can say that. Ever done that? Ever questioned whether you're a mighty warrior when the Lord says that to you? Or, you, or even I say that? I have, and I still do all the time. I'm not much of a mighty warrior. I'm afraid of my own shadow sometimes. Gideon had questions. How can I do this? I come from a weak and insignificant family. Where are all the victories that I read about in the Bible? They're not happening. Remember, God calls the things that aren't as though they were. God declares today, if you'll listen to Him, that you are a mighty warrior. It's true that most of us are weak in the world's eyes and come from insignificant podunk northern New York. But God's power has always been and always will be perfected in weakness. God always says when we are weak, He's strong. I want you to hear the word of the Lord as a mighty warrior. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. These are directly out of Judges, the book of Judges. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Accept it embrace it and walk in it that the Lord is with you as a mighty warrior. God is with you in this task to lead, to protect, and to deliver your family. He called you and He's with you every step of the way. And remember that what makes you a mighty warrior is where your power comes from. My help and your help comes from where? Comes from God Himself. It's not your training. It's not your skill. It's not your experience. God can use those things, but ultimately the fact that you're a mighty warrior is because you walk and you talk with the maker of the universe who is all-powerful and he grants his power unto you to make you mighty. One of the commands that he gave Gideon, he gives to us too, go in the strength that you have, which sounds like a feeble thing. Go in the strength you have. Initial response is, I got no strength. Gideon didn't have much strength, did he? Hiding in the wine press. But he was told, go in the strength that you have. I have a question for you. Do you have a mustard seed of strength or of faith? The smallest amount possible. Do you have just a few small 
fish and bread, to pull another story from the New Testament. You have something. You really do. God is poised to take what you have, even though it's tremendously insignificant for the task at hand, He is poised and ready when you go in that, knowing He'll make up the difference. And He's promised He will multiply what you have and make it more than enough. More than enough and multiply it so it way more than meets the need for you to do what you need to do. God has promised this too. Go in the strength that you have, and then this one. He says, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianite raiders together. God will be with you, and you will strike down all the raiders that are coming after you and your family and the people around you together. Sometimes, we need to be reminded of, oftentimes, that God's going to be with us every step of the way. And I want to tell you that with God's help, with God's help and with His leading and with His call, you will be able to protect and to deliver and to rescue and lead your family. Gideon asked for a sign. Give me a sign. In Christian circles, you're not supposed to ask for a sign. Only a wicked generation asks for a sign. Yet, Gideon asked for a sign, and God gave him how many? He asked for two, he got three. He got the two he asked for, and God said, oh, just on top of that, just so you know, here. Sometimes, we just need to know that God's there. Sometimes we just need to know that He's with us. Sometimes we just need to know that we're not making all this up in our head. So get on your knees before God. Seek Him diligently. You can ask for a sign, but you seek Him diligently. And you ask Him to show Himself to you in a way that's meaningful to you. You can privately ask Him to come, to show Himself, to speak to you to show you and make you assured that He really is leading you in this way to do these things. And you know what He'll do? The same thing that He did for Gideon. Because He's called you, and if your willingness is not something to put Him to the test, but I really need to know God because I'm afraid, I'm nervous, I don't know if I can do this, but will you show yourself strong? Will you show and prove to me again that I'm on the right track? And He'll do the same thing for you that He did for Gideon. He'll show up. And he'll make it clear. And he will give you proof and evidence that he truly is strong and it's going to help. Now, God's going to ask you to do some really tough stuff. What's the first thing that Gideon was asked to do? Not to lead the people into battle and have God miraculously show up. It was to what? Deliver them from their idol worship. And it started with him doing something that was stupid. He cut down the altar to Baal. He cut down the idol to Asherah in the middle of the night. And then what was their threat? Who did this? It was Gideon. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. God is going to ask you as a dad, as a man, to tear down the idols of the world. 
to stand in the face of all the things that we as humans put our trust in. Possessions, money, entertainment, position, popularity, pursuit, sex, so on, so forth. All that junk, even the stuff that maybe isn't even sinful, but we put our eyes on. He's going to call you to do the same thing that he called Gideon to do, which is to stop that stuff in your family first and the people around you first. In opposing the gods of the world, money, power, popularity, sex, sports, hobbies, you name it. All the things that elevate themselves in importance in a person's life beyond God. He's going to ask you to stand in opposition to those things, and I'm going to tell you that will not be popular. It's not going to win you points with people. It's not going to get you elected to office or be a person of prestige in the community. It's not going to do that because it goes counter to what the community is holding value to. And people may even come after you. They threaten to come after Gideon, but the interesting thing in the story, when his dad spoke up and said, let Baal defend himself, and they began to realize that Baal didn't do anything, and so they realized they could not touch God's leader. What they, no matter what they would try to do, they couldn't do it. Do you realize they went after Jesus? They threatened to kill him. And do you realize they were not able to kill Jesus until God said this is time? They actually didn't even kill him. Jesus said, it's finished, and then gave up his spirit. They tried one time to throw him off a mountain, but the Bible... Now, get this. We just read over this and we forget the significance of what it said. A mob came, had him on the edge of a mountain, and we're going to throw him off. It wasn't his time, and it says he walked through the crowd. How did that happen? Mob mentality doesn't do that. They did, it was miraculous. God, the enemy can't touch you until your time is done when you take these kinds of commitments. Remember, God is with you. He is your shield. He is your defense. He's your rear guard. He goes before you, he comes behind you, and he fights your battles. And the same thing that he told Gideon, God will bring complete victory if you follow his ways and sell out to him. God got a complete victory. Did you catch in that story? The Midianites were utterly destroyed and never again, never again. And when he says never again, not in the first few months, but never again in the history of Israel did the Midianites ever attack Israel again because there was nobody left to attack them. They had totally been devastated. Complete victory. But it came by Gideon's obedience and illogical steps to winnow that fighting force down to 300 guys against a multitude of people. Why? God said, because I will get the credit. If you do it any other way, it's too easy for people to take credit for it. God will do a complete victory, and he will get credit in the manner in which he does it. He will do it miraculously, in ways that you can't explain, but he will also use you in the process. It's it's a crazy. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible because it probably goes back when I was a kid. I can visualize on the side of that mountain, just like I was with my grandfather yesterday. This ring of people quietly sneaking up and being in spot, and then smash, and and I can see the flames all around, and then people just going crazy in the middle of that. God used them, but He did it miraculously in using them. 
And when they told those stories to their kids afterwards, it wasn't taking credit for, oh, Dad, you're such a great soldier. Anyone that was worth their medal said, it had nothing to do with me other than the fact that I stepped out and was willing to be obedient to what my commander, what God was telling us to do, and God delivered us that day. As we close this morning, can I tell you again? You, Dad, are on a God-given mission. You're on a God-given mission to do what? To deliver, to protect, and rescue your family from the things of this world that would destroy, distract, oppress, and distress your family spiritually. Not talking economically. I'm not talking politically. I'm not talking career-wise. I'm talking spiritually. Their eternal destiny. The enemy is after you and your family to try to prevent your kids from getting to eternity with God. And if he can't get that done, he's also going to try to get to you and your family to prevent your kids from being the next generation of God-seekers who will change the world and lead other people to heaven. Because if he can't get you, he'll go after your wife and kids. And if he can't get your wife and kids, he'll try to stop them and shut their mouths so they won't do it anywhere else. And God has called you. You're on a God-given mission to deliver, to rescue, and to protect, and to model to them so that they won't walk in distress. And God's plan for you in this God-given mission is that he will bring complete victory through you to them. I want to encourage you. Seek Him about this today. Obey Him today. Don't abdicate the role of judge, of leader, of deliverer, of protector to somebody else. As I said last week, as a parent to parents, now it's specifically to dads, nobody else is called to that role except you. Yes, God can raise somebody up if you choose to refrain from it. And abstain from that. But you are the best qualified person in your kid's life to do this. And how about this one? Go and the strength you have. And you know what? You're in really good stance if you've got like little to no strength at all. You just take it and say, God, I give you what I got. It ain't much, but you can have it. And what that means is in the end... You go in your meager amount, you offer it to him, and then he makes up the difference with his supernatural strength. Scripture tells us he is more than able to do above and beyond what we can imagine and or think. He has more than enough power, more than his strength, to more than make up the difference with your meager amount. But you've got to do what that little boy did that day with Jesus. Is He was hungry, but what did he do? When they came and asked, these strange men came up and says, can we have your fish? And can we have your bread? He did what? And a miracle happened. I want to pray for you this morning, guys, before I turn things to Jeff. There's a story, another story in Kings. And one of the great prophets, I think it was Elisha, He's got a servant. Again, the Israelites have been disobedient. They're facing judgment. But God has said He's going to deliver. But it doesn't look good. There are multitudes of armies that have surrounded the city. And that's what they can see. 
And Elisha's servant says, Sir, what are we going to do? Look at all of them. We can't, we're, we're in trouble. What are we going to do? And Elisha says, what I'm going to pray here in a second, he says, Oh Lord, open their eyes. Open his eyes. Open his eyes. So that he can see that those that are with us are more than those with them. And instantaneously, you know what God did? He opened the servant's eyes. And the servant's eyes, now he can see the multitude of soldiers, but what he sees is an even bigger multitude of the heavenly hosts, the army of God, that were all around. And it changed everything for him. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you would overcome what the enemy would try to do, the enemy who comes to steal and kill and destroy, who is trying to steal, kill, and destroy and bring disruption and distress and oppression and anxiety in the families represented in this church and the families represented in our community. I pray right now in the name of Jesus, Lord, you would raise up the dads, the men, to be your judges, your leaders. And Lord, I pray in this moment you would open all of our eyes as dads, as men, to see that those with us the spiritual forces with us outnumber the spiritual forces against us. Open our eyes so we can see it. Show yourself strong, O oh God. Give us courage, not because we're strong in our own might. Give us courage and strength to be people who are alert and men who are alert and ready, ready to do your bidding, ready to do your call, ready to rely on you that will offer the minimal amount of stuff that we actually have that can make a difference in this fight, but because we know that when we give it to you, you can multiply it and you can deliver our families and deliver our community. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus you would remove fear. Fear comes from the enemy, Lord. I pray that the men in this, that are here this within the dads specifically, they would not be afraid. They would not be fearful. They would not be, be, be nervous or tense about even what their own family is going to think about them, Lord. I pray that they would dig their heels in with a fit jaw set saying, as for me and my house, we will serve Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would also help these guys to, 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 to set their feet strong on the rock of Christ. And to make your teachings and your ways the most important thing in our life by which all else is judged. And they would begin to chase after things that have eternal significance and base their lives on those things. And I pray that as they do that, their life would be contagious to their wife and contagious to their kids. And their kids want to be just like dad. Not because he's a powerful person in the community, but because he, he carries powerful spiritual impact. And they want to be the same. Lord, I pray that you'd give them the equipment and give them all that they need to be that leader in their home, in their families, to be the leader that's needed in the workplace, to be the leader in this community, and to even be leaders in the world that are not strategic politically in the world system, but hold power in the heavenly realms because they rely on you. And Lord, help us to realize that we can start in the simple, small area of our families. Don't let us think that that's insignificant and it doesn't amount to anything. I pray that we would recognize that being faithful in our families of leading 
can have a powerful eternal impact in generations to come. Help us to be faithful until you return. We trust and know that you'll give us what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.